5 to 15. Nine five to fifteen. Uh, <clears throat> this is a reading of God's word. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead uh, to you and arrange in advance for the gifts you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this: whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, uh, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work, as it is written. He has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for the food will supply and multiply your seed for growing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for all your generosity, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but also, uh, but it also uh, overflowing in many thanksgiving to God by their approval of their service. They will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they are long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace God, uh, because the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks to be God for his inexpressible gift. This is reading of God's word. Generally, uh, generally, people uh, get extremely nervous when ministers talk about money. Uh, and and uh, that's one of the reasons why I stay away from the subject in my church. Uh, and people who come to our church, who consistently come out to our church, say one of the good things about our church is that pastors doesn't talk about money. Uh, I've been there for 18 years. I planted a church 18 years ago, and uh, I preached... Uh, my 18 years of ministry there, I think I preached about money, like, uh, except for the seed campaign we recently had for our building uh, purchase that we try to do, uh, that uh, probably, like, uh, two times or three times. And uh, that's one of the good things people say uh, uh, about our church or, or, or my uh, preaching, that... Uh, that I don't emphasize or talk about money at all. But I, I'm here, I'm preaching four sermons, and uh, I'm adding one sermon about money into that four uh, sermon series. Because there could be an imbalance that can happen, so I'm going to uh, really mention this. And, and especially as you begin this uh, new chapter as a church, that this is a very interesting, important topic and not only as a church, but as individuals and family units, that this is something that we ought to think about. So there are two reasons uh, why I think I need to talk about money. First reason is you often, if not always, think about money. Uh, the major cause of marital conflict is money. In America, uh, three major causes of marital conflict, money, sex, children. 
those three things. For uh, Asian Americans, the fourth factor comes in, and that's the mother-in-law. So, uh, and, and these are, these are uh, causes of uh, marital conflict. You fight about money, you worry about money, you get anxious about money, uh, and you get nervous when ministers talk about money. And the second reason is that uh, Bible often talks about money. Jesus uh, spent nearly 25% of his time talking about money. The Gospel of Luke is almost completely about money. If you read it uh, and, and, and see uh, throughout the Gospel according to Luke, you can see how often Jesus talks about money. And that, that book, I mean, we can, we can even say that the book is entirely about money. Therefore, it's very artificial to stay away from uh, something that is so central in Christian life, so central uh, in the Gospels, that Jesus uh, talks about money more than anything else. He talks about uh, sin of greed more than any other things. Church uh, folks always talk about uh, sinful, like sexual sins, like lust and other things like, you know, uh, gender issues and homosexuality and da da they get all uptight and, and, uh, and Christians uh, go over on that and they get uh, too overly zealous without having this balance where Jesus talks more about lust uh, and, 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 gr- and actually greed uh, than uh, sexual sins. So it's, it's very important to talk about this. The Bible says uh, there are going to be no significant spiritual growth unless you put your money and what you think of, uh, about your money is uh, into, uh, into God's hands. And unless you really put money into God's hands and, and really have a proper understanding of, or, 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 or should I say, a proper theology of money, there is no significant spiritual growth because it's just too big and just too pivotal of an issue. I was introduced uh, to this little uh, manuscript called The Epistle of Methetes to Diognetus, uh, which was uh, probably written in A.D. 130, and I did some uh, research on this. Uh, We don't know who wrote this. It just says, Methetes to Diognetus. Diognetus is the name of a person. Methetes means a disciple. So uh, a, a disciple wrote this letter to uh, Diognetus in AD 130. And it's it's talking about uh, Christian character, Christian life. And and this Mathetes, this disciple of Jesus Christ, is trying to introduce to Diognetus what Christianity is all about in AD 130. And it's got about six chapters, and one of the chapters is about Christian character and Christian life. And in your booklet, uh, in the uh, last section of your small group discussion, there's that quote, and then we're going to read it together. Not together in one voice, but I'm going to read it, and and you're going to follow along. Uh, This is what he says. This is AD 130, folks. This is not 2018. This is AD 130. Did I say that, A.D. 130? See how, see how uh, uh, relevant and, and, and uh, contemporary it is. Look, let me tell you why Christianity is spreading so fast. Christians busy themselves on earth 
but their citizenship is in heaven. They live in their own native lands, but they live as aliens. For every foreign country is to them as their native land, and every native land is as their foreign country. They marry and have children, but they do not kill their unwanted babies. They share their table with everyone, but they don't share their bed with everyone. They love everyone, but are persecuted by all. They are poor and make many rich. They are short of everything and yet have plenty of everything. They are treated outrageously, but behave respectfully. They are mocked and blessed in return. When they do good, they are attacked. When they're attacked, they rejoice as if being given new life. The epistle of Mathetes to Diagnosis, chapter 5, The Manner of Christians. That's a direct quote, A.D. 130. We notice at least four qualities of early Christians uh, that early Christians had. And, 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 and all these outsiders, outside of uh, uh, Christianity. They were attracted to Christianity. They were like, wow, look at these Christians. What's up with these people? What's going on? Why are you this way? How come you're so attractive? And, and, and this letter, at least, this part of the letter, at least, gives me four qualities that I want to highlight. Number one, there's absence of racism. Every foreign country is to them as their native land, and every native land is as their foreign country. Christians must deal with this issue of racism. And we must understand. When I first came to America in 1976, our family settled in inner-city Baltimore. Inner city Baltimore, I go to a junior high school. It's 95% African American. That's where I picked up English. In Korea, I didn't know anything. I knew like three words. Radio, banana, stuff like that. <laughs> Chocolate, you know, coffee, and that, that kind of stuff. Uh, and, then, and then in Baltimore, I knew it wasn't coffee, it's coffee. And then I come to New York, I, I know it's not coffee or coffee, it's coffee. So, uh, so it's, it's like, uh, I, I, that's where I learned the language. That's why you hear me often say things like, yo, yo, what's up? You know, that's, it's just in me, because I have that soul. Um, so I, I, I grew up in all black neighborhoods throughout my high school, junior high school years. All my friends were African-American. And I didn't know, I didn't know why I had to learn that every February of, you know, every February, each year, that's Black History Month, why it was so big that I had to learn all these black heroes. And in my church, past February, I did uh, a series on black Christian heroes. And I thought I needed to educate our folks and how we ought to appreciate our brothers and sisters. That I know, I'm going to be very blunt, that even now, 
that some of our church folks' parents would say, oh, no, you've got to marry within your own race. And it's, it, it really hurts me that, that they're, they call themselves Christians, and it's not attractive. One of the reasons why it was so attractive in AD 130 was because there was absence of racism. Everybody was able to come together. Number two, there was a high view of life. Look at what it says. They do not kill their unwanted. That was interesting in AD 130. It was very intriguing for these people who are outside of Christianity. They said, wow, you don't kill your unwanted babies. You have your babies and you continue. Even though you're low in your income, it wasn't income tax issues. Number three, they had unusual view of sex. They share their tables with everyone, but they don't share their bed with everyone. That's what it says. Unusual view of sex. While everyone is sleeping around, how come you're not doing that? We can't get that testimony in New York. Not even my church. That's one of my biggest struggles as a pastor. How do I help my single people in our church to have this unusual view of sex? Not just single people, but married people as well. Fourth, there was a lifestyle of generosity. They shared a table with everyone. Though poor, they make many rich. Though they have nothing, they're short of everything. They have plenty of everything. What that's saying is that these early Christians were marked by eye-popping generosity. They were radically generous. They were poor themselves, but they shared. They were poor, but they shared. Radical generosity. And the people outside of Christianity were like, what are you doing? Why are you sharing everything? How come all these people coming together in your homes and eating together and then breaking bread together and you're fellowshipping and you're, 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 you're having fun and you don't have much to share, but you're giving to the poor and they're not even Christians and you're sharing to non-Christians? The heck? What's going on? I want to know what's going on. And that's how a lot of people were attracted to Christianity, first century. That's what we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. So I'm going to break down this uh, passage with this introduction in mind, the, the lifestyle of radical generosity, uh, three things, the act of generosity, the motive of generosity, and the resource or the blessing of generosity, should I say, the blessing of generosity. The act of generosity, the motive of generosity, and the blessings of generosity. Notice first, in verses 5, 6, and 7, two kinds of giving are contrasted here. Uh, this is how not to give and how to give. Uh, that's contrasted. Here's how to give and how not to give. I'm going to start with how not to give, giving sparingly. Uh, look at verse 5 with me. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead, arrange in advance the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as willingness, willing gift, not as an exaction. Literally, not as Covetousness, but as blessing. That's, what that's how we should read it, literally. Uh, not as covetousness, but as blessing. 
That's what it says, verse 5. Don't give like that. Uh, and, and, and verse 6, the point is this. He who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Don't give sparingly. Give bountifully. Right? Don't give sparingly. Verse 7. Each one must do as is made of his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves the cheerful giver. Don't give begrudgingly. Give freely and cheerfully. Share. Share what you have. Uh, share what you have with others. Not begrudgingly, but freely, cheerfully. And three descriptions of how not to give, and there are three descriptions of how to give. Verse 5, not as an exaction or covetously. Verse 6, not sparingly, not reluctantly. And how do you give? But, verse 5, same thing, as a willing gift. Verse 6, bountifully. Verse 7, cheerfully. And I think the key word that wraps everything together is this word in verse 6, bountifully. Uh, it's, it's, uh, the reason why I say that is because uh, in, 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 in Greek language, it's the same word as the one you use in verse 5. Literally, it means give on the basis of your blessing. Because you have been given much, you share much. And you can be cheerful about that. So giving bountifully means from a heart that wants to share things. If you have much, if you've given much, you share much. Something has happened in your heart that the basic desire is now to give and share as much as possible instead of keep as much as possible. You see, that God prospers you not to raise your standard of living, but to raise the standard of giving. And that's how God's blessing people. And that's why God's blessing is people. God blesses you. You're, you're blessed. You're all blessed people. You say, oh, I don't know. I know I'm tremendously blessed. I live in New York. I own a home, house. Can you believe that? I own a house. It's not a church property. It's my own property. It's under my name and my wife's name. Yo, in New York, even though it's a small, tiny, three-bedroom, one-and-a-half bathroom and shared driveway, I even have a little backyard where I can do all that Korean, you know, grandparents do, gardening and all that stuff, you know. In New York, in Queens, and I'm able to survive, and I'm able to send our kids to school, even though they have loans and everything, that's, that's okay. With my income, with my lifestyle, I am on the top 3% of richest people in the world. Top 3%. Can you believe that? Can you imagine? Living in America, living in New York, probably the living standard is probably very similar, San Jose, New York and owning something. We have three cars. Can you believe that? Three cars. Two of them lease, but three cars. We all have our separate phones. iPhone, 
Yo. Unlimited data. God blessed us. God blessed us. God blessed you. God prospers you not to raise the standard of living, but to raise the standard of giving in your life. Let me share with you one practical guideline when it comes to generosity. Practical guideline. This is a practical guideline. I think a good practical guideline of giving and sharing is a guideline of what the Bible calls tithe. 10%. Uh, in the Old Testament, believers were required to give tenths of their income to support their ministry and for the needs of the poor. The New Testament only once specifically mentions the tithe in Luke 11, explaining that since we are far more blessed and indebted to God than the Old Testament believers, we are to give more generously and share, not less. So tithing, 10% is the annual, of this annual gift income, is kind of a, a minimum guideline for sharing, minimum guideline. It's not a command, it's a guideline. It's a good practical guideline. So I taught my children to tithe when they were little. When they were in their children's worship, they never, never gave $1 bill. I thought that was just wrong. You don't have income, don't give. I told them, don't give. You don't have income. But when you get an allowance from your parents, $3 a week, give 30%. That's tithing. When you get $5, give 50%. 50 cents. That's tithing. I taught them to tithe. My, parent, my wife and I, we taught them to tithe, and now they're reluctantly doing it, but uh, hopefully it'll come around where they can be really can really understand. I, and it's not easy. It's hard. It's hard for me sometimes. So when I do premarital counseling with, with young couples, I, I give them homework, give about, you know, uh, finance. I ask them to give me one-year budget in their first year of marriage. And I don't want to give, I don't want numbers. Don't give me numbers. Just give me categories. Your fixed expense and your non-fixed expense. What goes under fixed expense and non-fixed expense? Gym membership, vacation, fixed expense. Okay, what about, what about tithing? What about support to missionaries? What about mercy and justice fund? Could that be in your fixed expense? Are you getting a little uncomfortable here? So this is an act of generosity. God has given us so much share. What's the motive? How do we give bountifully and generously? The sparing heart has a relationship to God that feels like, like and, and sees God uh, more as a taker than a giver. If my life is being drained away by God because he's so incessantly and so, so, so demanding, then I feel like, grasping after things that I have to meet my needs. And so the big issue for our lives and, 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 and this morning and for you in your life and your church is how you see God. What do we feel him to be? 
when we look into his face? Do you see him as a taker or a giver? That's the bottom line question. That's the bottom line question I have when I see God's face, when I ponder, when I'm sitting out here in the morning and looking out and saying, God, you created all things. You are amazing. You're beautiful. You're wonderful. You give me life and you give me this privilege to come to this Lake Tahoe. How can I ever come if it wasn't for God's grace and Susang's generosity and your love and your kindness? And I'm thinking, God, thank you. Are you a taker or a giver? What do you think? How do you see God? How do you see God? Do you see God as a taker or a giver? So the burden of the rest of the text is to help us to see God and feel God is a giver, not a taker. The point of verse 10 is that God is a giver, not a taker. Verse 10 says that he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed of source to sowing and increase the harvest for righteousness. He gives seed before we give so that we can sow it generously. And he gives harvest after we give so that we are rewarded for our generosity. The great truth of this text is that God wants to be known and trusted and loved as a giver, not a taker. Otherwise, our giving will be draining, burdensome, oppressive, legalistic, sparing. There you go again talking about money. That's what church is all about. No, not really. What you do as a Christian must always be out of your love for God. There is no Better illustration than this when Charles Spurgeon said, imagine you're sick and you have this magic medicine that can cure your sickness and you go to this doctor and say, hey, I heard you have this magic medicine that can cure me of my sickness and your doctor says, this is very expensive, by the way. I don't think you can buy this. You might have to sell your house. You might have to sell your library. You might have to sell your car to get this medicine. And the person will say, who cares about my house? Who cares about this? If I die, I'll sell everything and get this medicine, and I want to be healthy and live. And I think it's that simple illustration teaches us that to you all who believe, Jesus Christ is that precious do you know that he, what he has done for you, your, every, your t- attitude towards everything else, you'll say, look, in Christ, I have everything. Everything I need, I have in Jesus Christ. Everything else is expendable. Everything else is eternally and utterly expendable. There's nothing we must have and I say this all the time, when we were in this building campaign, we really wanted to purchase this building. And we, you know, we sat in our session meeting and our elders, we sat together and we, we said, you know, yeah, yeah, we, we, we want to have big faith and, and, and really uh, go after this building and buy it, but, but we have to determine whether this is the Holy Spirit leading us or a bunch of guys, you know, in our 40s and 50s. Make, we have to determine, we have to discern 
Is this the Holy Spirit or is this our testosterone? We have to determine that. And we prayed. We prayed. And I told our church folks, every time I gave announcement, every time we had town hall meeting, I said, there's nothing we must have other than Jesus. This building can be expendable. You don't have to have it. Well, we couldn't buy it. But it's okay. And uh, we come together, and we, we, we really realize everything is expendable because we have Christ. You see, money wants to enslave us, to pull us from Christ. It is a competing God. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 6. That flows easily to whatever we get meaning from life. You know, we want to get meaning in life from, from, from what we have and what we don't have. Rich people think they can get power from it. Poor people think they can get security from it. Money is not an issue just for rich people. There might be some people sitting there, I'm not that rich, I don't have money problem. It's for those people, rich people, they're just spending now, you know, and they're just throwing their money away. No, it's for middle class, upper class, low class. Money is an issue for all of us. We're trying to get some meaning out of that. Whether it's power or security or stability, whether you're rich or poor, money has a power to enslave us. It has that weird power. It has that strange power. And I think we need to live simply and avoid access to status free. To build our hope and trust in God and not the things of this world. Not the things of this world. And as a practice, my wife and I, we practice, you know, living simply and giving our stuff away. Any clothes, anything that we don't use in one year, we always get rid of. And we have coat drive at church, eyeglasses drive at church. We have all these different drives where, where people just bring their food, stuff, their clothes. So we got to practice something like this, I think, because we're after all these things in this world. I was working for my parents' store in Baltimore, inner city. Uh, my parents had this uh, fried chicken store. It was called Super Fried Chicken. And Super Fried Chicken store had uh, our, our special. It was called Chicken Box. Four chicken wings and western fries. Four chicken wings and western fries. Back then it was one ninety-five. Isn't that a good price? Now this is in the 80s. Four wings and western fries. And we call them wings and things. <laughs> That's our original. In the late 70s and early 80s, wings and things. You get the wings, things just come. And some people come and say, you know, let me get some one wing or two wings, and then some of them western fries. says, no, 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 you don't understand the deal. Get the chicken box, because you get the wings, Things just come with it. Don't worry about them things. Get the wings. And I'll preach to them. Get the wings. Things just come. Don't worry about them things. Get the wings. If you get the wings, what happens? Things just come. Get them wings. 
Somebody read Matthew 6.33. Somebody in the back, real quick. Matthew 6.33. Somebody read real quick. Or somebody can memorize that. Read. Louder, please. Thank you. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things. Jesus had wings and things in mind. <laughs> Seek. This is what Jesus meant. Get the wings, things is called. That's exactly what Jesus meant. Get the wings, things come. Why are we so concerned about the things of this life when we can have the wings? And that's what it's all about here. will set us free if we seek his righteousness and his kingdom. The rule of Jesus. Jesus as my Lord and as my King, as my God, my Savior, as my friend. And other things will just follow. But we have this inverted. Jesus Christ poured himself out for our sake so that we can live to give to others. Our use of money is a model of grace and love, and that's how we share it. How do you have the heart for generosity? Your heart will follow your treasure. Your heart will follow your treasure. Your money does not follow your heart. Remember that. Your money does not follow your heart. Your heart will follow your money. Your heart will follow whatever you treasure the most. What do you treasure? Your heart will follow that. Money doesn't follow your heart. The heart follows your money. You'll have more interest in what you spend your money on. And that's the fact. That's the truth. That's the reality. That's our experience. You always say, we got to get our money's worth. The speaker better be good. <laughs> we got to get our money's worth. This retreat center better be good. We got to get our money's worth. You know, I, this is one of my, one of many, one of my weaknesses. One of my idols, money. I love money too much. I love things in this life. I like good things. I chose wrong profession. I should have just took over my parents' superfied chicken. Then I, by this time, I could, have, I could have made franchise. We could have had superfied chicken San Jose. Uh, when my kids, little, when they were young and they had school things, I, I hated this. You know, when I, when I look back, I'm regretting more and more. My regrets are increasing. This is one of the things. The first question I ask my children all the time was, how much is it going to cost? I didn't ask, how is it going to benefit 
Are you going to have fun? Who's going to be involved? What's the purpose of this? How long will it take? Will you enjoy it? It's going to help you? Can we come and watch together? Can we do it together? I never ask those questions. My one and only first and the last single question was, how much is it going to cost? And I regret. My two older kids never did school play. Do you know in New York, kids have to pay money to be on school play? That if you're a main character, you have to pay more? Did you know that? Our youngest, Prosper, he's very active. So he wanted to be on school play. And I said, how much is it going to cost? He says, I don't know. It depends. And I'm like, what do you mean it depends? If I'm a main character, <laughs> it's about this much. And if I'm just a person with a couple lines, and I said, yeah, you don't have to be the main character. <laughs> just, just be a person just passing by. You can be in the play. Pay 200 bucks. And I asked that question at church too in our session meeting. And I hate that. That I, I, can, I can never learn. And I preach it. Seek first his kingdom and righteousness. And all these things will come. And then my session meeting, I'm like, how much is it going to cost? <laughs> I need Jesus' grace. That's why we have to sing the song every morning. There was a period in my life, my wife and I, we had this morning ritual for about two years. Every morning, we wake up in the morning, turn on uh, uh, Fernando Ortega. In the morning when I rise, give me Jesus and, 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 and have a cup of coffee and we just talk about, honey, we need Jesus. In the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. Because I forget. And I was really uh, happy to sing that song because there was one period in our, in our life we had this, we, we had this ritual. In the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. I forget. I forget Jesus. Here's a blessing of generosity. Paul's not done here. Paul speaks of blessing you receive when you give generously, verse 10. You will increase in the harvest of righteousness. What is the harvest of righteousness? What does the harvest of our sowing look like when it begins to come in? In some of your case, the harvest of righteousness, or it's my case, but, but hopefully you can relate. You won't st- Stop worrying about money until you start give like this. I mean, you, you, can, you can really be free from this worry and anxiety. Some of you are eaten up with worry. And until you begin to obey this text, you'll never get to that security. You'll never have that security. Unless you can be free from it and give. And say, Lord... You give, and you take it away. Candace's philosophy on money, her theology of money is this. Money comes, money goes. We will not be defined by money. We will not be defined by what we possess. We will not be defined by that, even though we fail many times. We won't worry too much. God wants to open our hands and receive his blessing as we share. Being generous is a joy when we realize in giving we are acting like Jesus.
Every Easter, we have Easter sacrificial offering, where 100% of our offering is given away to our neighbors who are in need and church folks. We get sometimes 100 to 200% more than our usual giving. And I was shocked that people are so generous. And we're looking for people to share. And people willing to share. People willing to give. And I was very, very blessed. Being generous is a joy when we realize that in giving, we're acting like Jesus. Don't you say you want to be like Jesus Christ? We love our Lord Jesus. We see his grace at work in our lives. We see areas where we're growing. And we know some of those areas. We're not growing and we're not like Jesus. We're painfully aware of those areas. But when we give, we begin to follow him. We begin to follow. We get to act like Jesus. Don't take that for granted. Having this privilege to give. You have a privilege to give. So this is what I recommend to our church folks. Minimum guideline of tithing. Set aside missions fund on top of that. Set aside mercy and justice fund on top of that. Set aside hospitality fund on top of that. And you have different categories of giving and start practicing it. God will provide somehow. And he increases our standard of giving. It's really hard to give 10%. Start with 2%. And plan on increasing it to 3%, 3% next year. 5% year after. Practice sharing. When I go to these parents, when I, when I go to our church folks' homes, you know, there are children there, other children there, and their little children, you know, they're like kids, say, you know, they're coming and say, Mommy, Daddy, Brandon doesn't want to share his toy. And, and then and the mom and dad goes, Brandon, you have to share, you have to share, give your toy and, work, and, and play, let him play with it. And I'm like, gosh, that is so harsh. How would you like it if I come to you and say, share your checking account? <laughs> your savings account, share with others. It's just like saying that to your child. That's everything he owns. That's his identity. That's everything. What does he have? But you're saying that. Why? Because you know it's good. Because you know it's good. You know it's good for his character. You know it's good to share. Preach that to yourself. Share your checking account. Share your savings account. There are people who need it. I'm serious. Yo, yo, I'm dead serious. Of course, that's... I'm preaching to myself. I got practice. 
When you give, you, act, you get to act like Jesus. I'll close with this. 2 Corinthians 8.9. 2 Corinthians 8.9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. He was the richest person in the world. And he became poor for your sake. And now in him, you're rich. In him, you have everything. And we say, thank you, Lord. We enjoy it. And I'm asking you to take one step further. How about following him in his example and sharing what we have in your radical generosity so that your church can be a giving church, that your neighborhood, your people around, and your friends can say, you know, that, you're, you're, that you can come to your church leaders and elders or deacons or pastors and say, you know, I have a friend. He's not a Christian, but, but he's really struggling financially. Can our church help? Is there space for that in your church? Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be great? In our church, we help some our neighbors our church, we're struggling. Not Christians. Our, our aim is not to convert them. Our aim is to be like Jesus. Give. Give his love and share. So let's not take that for granted. Let's pray. Father, uh, this is a hard message. Uh, so God, the Holy Spirit, Lead us, teach us, and uh, help us understand this uh, radical, the gospel of radical generosity. As a church, as individuals, as family units, I pray that you'll lead us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.